Thank you for listening to the official podcast of Everyday Church. We are a body of believers in Oklahoma City with the mission to live out our faith on a daily basis. Let's listen in as we hear a powerful message from God's Word. All of us, we know this, we get this. We have different personality traits. We have different quirks. We're just all made and wired differently, and that is a good thing, right? We're not all the same. But I find it interesting, even when it comes to a topic like rules, some of us are more natural rule followers. You see a sign or you get the instruction, you can't touch this, right? can't touch this. Thank you, Hammer, okay? And so I was with Hammer before he was Hammer when he had the MC, okay? So I've been an MC Hammer fan. You can't touch this, right? Y'all remember that song? All right? So some of you, you hear the phrase, you see the sign, you can't touch this, and you're like, I can't touch this. I've been told, Hammer has spoken, no touching, right? And you kind of just lend yourself to be that way. How many of you are kind of more a natural rule follower? Yeah, okay, some of you, some of you are. Now, the rest of you are more like me, right? And, and tend to be a rule breaker, right? You hear Hammer say, can't touch this. and you're like, I'm touching. I'm plotting and I'm planning when and where I'm going to touch. Whenever that sign is, I'm going to get as close as possible and I'm going to break this Rule. We all kind of land in different places. Now, whether you tend to follow the rules or whether you tend to break them, we all can agree on this, okay? When God has spoken and he has given us a command or a rule, we've all broken a rule before. I could go through the Ten Commandments and I guarantee it will come to at least one that you have broken. Now, what you do with that is key because some of you are kind of like me, even though that I, I tend to find the rules and break them. When I break God's rules, when I break God's commands, man, I, I, I feel horrible. And it's not just conviction, which is a natural byproduct of being a follower of Jesus Christ and having the conviction of the Holy Spirit in my life. But I'll even take it to a, a toxic part of my life where I'll think, man, God, he, he's quit loving me. So it, it's that I've screwed up here. God has spoken, and he said, you can't touch this, and I did. And, and so it's not just that I'm under conviction that I'm not living how Christ would want me to and that I've, I've actually probably harmed myself in some way. I've, I've lost out on some sort of protection God has established. But now I've taken it even to God's character, and I've, I've expressed, well, God just doesn't like me anymore. God doesn't love me. And maybe you felt that way before. Maybe it's because you've messed up, or maybe it's just because you know that you should be doing good. See, sometimes it's not just you can't touch this and you touch this. Sometimes it says you should be praying or you should be worshiping or you should be abiding with Christ and you have forsaken that. Uh, Maybe you, you only got in the Bible one time this week and then it's... Partly like, oh man, not just conviction that, I, man, I, I have this incredible opportunity to be with God. But now it's like, man, God, I, I'm, not, I'm not drawn to him. But because of my guilt, I actually kind of go away because I think God has lessened his love of me. Now, I grew up in a home where I was taught God loves you. But that doesn't negate the fact that sometimes what I've been taught in society and culture that God's love is so conditional that I don't feel that way. And feel like, man, I really screwed up here. And so God must not like me right now. I believe most people struggle with this thought because it is kind of ingrained into our culture that uh, to have favor with God, to get into his good graces is based upon your performance, is based upon your behavior. I mean, that's what ultimately religion is. It's this man-made path to God. It is me earning my way into his good into his favor, into his presence. And every world religion 
says it. That your good has to outweigh your bad. And how you behave and how you perform is going to make you okay with your lowercase god or the cosmos or universe or, or karma in general. you got to make sure that you're doing good so that you can have good. In fact, when I talk with people and I'll ask them, I'll say, how do you get to heaven? And maybe you've had this conversation with someone before and you just say, hey, and if you were standing before God and he said, why should I let you in? Most people, they look introspectively first. They look at their life and think, I hope I did enough, or I hope I'm okay, or, or they'll say, you know, I'm a pretty good person. They're basing their acceptance from God completely based upon what they have done. And so it's really easy because that is so prevalent for even as a follower of Christ to start leaning that way. And maybe you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and that's kind of what you assume is that your good has to outweigh your bad. That's not the message we find in Scripture. In fact, for those that have put their faith and trust in Jesus, it's still easy to kind of fall into that trap and think that it's all about me and it's all about me behaving the correct way so that God would answer my prayer or to love me or accept me. But in Scripture, we actually see the opposite. God's message is that you don't ever and you can't ever and you won't ever find acceptance with him through your behavior. Never. And so I want you to write this down, to be a guide for us today. It's going to be on the screen for you. God's laws and rules are not conditions of a relationship. No, they are confirmation of a relationship. God's laws and rules are not conditions of his love. They are confirmation of his love. Take a, take a picture, write it down in a note. Whatever you want to do, I want you to capture that because it's so important for us today to understand that his rules, his laws, they're not this condition or terms and agreement that you must agree upon to have this relationship. No, they're confirmation that you are already in a relationship with him. They don't are some condition of his love. They're confirmation of his love. That's why Christianity is, is way more a relationship than it is any type of religion. But a lot of us embrace Christianity as a religion or at least we've adopted Christianity into our life sort of like the principles of a religion is, is sometimes goes back to the story of the Ten Commandments. Whether you thought about it this way or not, there's this kind of underlying assumption that God came down and, and he gave these ten rules to live by, and these are the standard. These are the ultimate gold standard of how we measure up as a follower of God, even as a follower of of Jesus. But what is funny though about these commandments, and even though we would probably say that is the gold standard, that a lot of us in this room probably couldn't name all 10. Right now you're racking your brain, okay? And maybe you could get six or seven. Maybe you're really holy and Bible drill champ and, and like Sarah, and you could get nine. <laughs> but she's even going to mess up the order, right? But what we've said, these are the perfect standard. And man, if I know I'm going to screw up and I'm going to mess up on these, then I'm going to feel guilty. But the real story is God broke into human history, not to give us these conditions for a relationship, but a confirmation of his relationship with us. That's the story. Very early on, God made it clear that we could never, ever behave our way into his love. That was never the point of the Ten Commandments. So I want us to start this series going to where we find the Ten Commandments. There's actually two places in Scripture that we find the Ten Commandments listed out for us. But we're going to be in Exodus chapter 20. Okay, The second book of the Bible called Exodus will be in the 20th 
chapter. Now, before we read, there's a little Bible history we should cover. Exodus is really about the nation of Israel exiting, okay, departing, leaving Egypt. That's the crux of the story. And, and so leading up to what we're about to read, the nation of Israel had been enslaved, okay, Israel had been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. To put that into perspective, this year as a country, we'll turn 244 years old. Okay, it's the United States of America. So 400 years enslaved in this country. Now, how they got there is basically through a man named Jacob. Okay, we could go further back, but we'll start with Jacob, who God changes his name to Israel because he has this covenant with Jacob. And it's a long story, and we don't have time to really go through the whole background, but one of Jacob's sons, Joseph, is in Egypt, and how he got there is divine and miraculous, but he becomes in control and in charge, and God foretells, tells him through a dream of Pharaoh that there's going to be famine. There's going to be a drought all throughout the land, and he prepares well, and he prepares uh, uh, by saving food for seven years. Well, Jacob and his whole family are starving, and so they come up to Egypt, okay, and through God's divine power through his sovereignty. He allows Jacob, and Egypt even embraces Jacob and his family to come move to Egypt to survive the drought. Now, while they're there, though, they begin to increase in number. God blesses them, and they procreate like crazy, like rabbits. And there's a ton of Jacob and his family. They become so large, and years have passed that a new Pharaoh is in control a new leader, and he looks upon them not with blessing but with curse. And he thinks, man, they're, they're getting too big and powerful. We need to put a stop to this. And so he makes Jacob's family, Israel, their slaves. And so for 400 years, they're in, I mean, this is all they've known, slavery. Their entire lives, slavery. They had a slave mentality. They probably had really poor self-esteem. They didn't have their own government. They didn't have their own king. They didn't have their own rulers. All they had were Egyptian masters. They've been slaves. Now, this is kind of where we're going to pick up. The Israelites have been rescued from slavery. Okay, and we'll go back and talk a little bit more about how that occurred. But they've escaped the pursuit of the Egyptians, and now God has brought them to this mountain, and he calls Moses, the one who has leading them on this cause. He is their champion. He calls them up on this mountain to speak with him, to proclaim his word to his people. And this is what God says, okay? Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. And then God gave the people all these instructions. As we start the series, we've got to start with these first two verses. Verse 2. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt the place of your slavery. Now, I want to stop here for a second. You're like, man, that's just like an introduction. Listen, these two verses are very important. And I want to start here because I don't want us to miss it. When God talks to Moses, he says, I am the Lord, your God. Emphasis on your. He's not saying, I am the God. He says, I am your God. God is making this personal. He implies that the people he is about to speak to have some sort of relationship with him. I am your God. Now what's crazy about this, Moses and the Israelites, they haven't really done anything to get into a relationship with God. Right? They don't even know what they should do if they were given the opportunity to be in relationship with him. But he says, I am your God. And he follows up with a little reminder. 
He's like, you know, I'm your God. The one who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. This was God's way of reminding Moses, we already got something going on. You remember, I'm the one who has brought you out thus far. A relationship has been formed. We in this thing together, but how? How was this relationship formed? How was God already their God? Well, we got to go back. Okay, so we'll, we'll, I want you to find chapter 12. But leading up to chapter 12, okay, before the mountain, okay, this is while they're in Egypt, okay, before God tells Moses he is their God, before that happens, God shows up, he tells Moses, hey, you're going to go lead my people to freedom. They, I have heard their cries, they've been oppressed, they've been enslaved for 400 years, I've heard enough, I want you to go to Pharaoh, Moses, and I want you to tell him, let my people go, my people these are my people, let them go. I'm calling my people out of Egypt to a land all their own. Well, Pharaoh, you think he's pretty keen to that idea? No. I mean, this is their entire economy, their slave labor, okay? Their economy was supported by all of these slaves. And so for the Israelites to say, for him to say, yeah, y'all get on out of here, that is costly, okay? Economic suicide. Just because Pharaoh isn't willing to listen, that doesn't mean God is is just going to say, okay, I'll change my mind. No, God does what? He performs these amazing miracles. He sends down these incredible plagues that even causes the Egyptians to say, hold up, what's going on here? They're having second thoughts. In fact, Pharaoh has third and fourth thoughts, okay, through this whole process. But he's like, okay, y'all got to go. Then it's like, no, this is crazy. I got, I, we'll, we'll make it through. But God keeps sending these miracles, these plagues. In fact, I, I would even assume that the Israelites are watching all this take place because there's the divine miracles thinking, who is this God that is acting on our behalf? Who is this God that is waging war for us? They've been enslaved and now God has showed up on the scene in such a powerful way demonstrating that, he, that they are his. And so they're watching this take place, and they've got to be thinking, who's coming to our rescue? Who is this God? But even after these nine amazing miracles, these amazing acts of God, Pharaoh's like, nah, that ain't happening. But then something kind of unexpected happens. Exodus chapter 12, verse 3. God says, announce to the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each family must choose a lamb. Or a young goat for sacrifice. One animal for each household. If a family is too small to eat a whole animal, 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 we, we need to make a snack. Hanimals. That could be ham cut up as animals. Sounds delicious. All right, let's start with verse 3 again. Announce to the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each family must choose a lamb or a young goat for a sacrifice, one animal for each household. If a family is too small to eat a whole animal, let them share with another family in the neighborhood. Divide the animal according to the size of each family and how much they can eat. The animal you select must be a one-year-old male, either sheep or goat, with no defects. Take special care of this chosen animal until the evening of the 14th day of the first month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel must slaughter their lamb or young goat at twilight. They are to take some of the blood and smear it on the sides and top of the door frames of the houses where they eat the animal. Okay, so 400 years, right? You're, you're, you're slaves. Then, then God is showing up. And, and then he says, okay, you're going to have this special dinner. 
And he tells them how to prepare it, what the families need to do to get ready. And he says, there's one more thing to this, which just totally doesn't make sense, okay? In in hindsight, if you've been around uh, the Bible or you've had a church type of setting, you're like, I get this, I know what it is. But think about this as brand new. You're going to take some blood. Okay, you're going to have to kill this lamb, and there's gonna be, it's going to be bloody. And you're going to take this blood, and you're going to spread it over the top and the sides of your door. Sleep tight. Excuse me? But you're going to take this blood, and you're going to smear this, and you're going to put it on the side tops, and you're going to do this because you're going to show to everyone, you trust me. You trust me, the one true God. The Israelites obey. They put their trust in what God is declaring, and they take the blood, and they put it on their doors. They obey. God spares them from the last plague, which is the death of the firstborn. Look at verse 12, 12, 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both men and beasts, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you. When I strike the land of Egypt, the last plague, the death of the firstborn son. Now, Pharaoh didn't have the blood of the lamb on his door. And so he loses his son. And that's it. That's the breaking point. Okay, that's the straw that broke the Egyptian camel's back. And so the Israelites leave Egypt as a free nation. They had been rescued by God, who was their God, who had obviously taken a personal interest in them. And it's crazy to think about, but I believe God was saying to them, listen, I'm your deliverer. I am your rescuer. I want to come to you in your greatest need. And all I want you to do is trust me. Some of the things I might ask you to do can sound crazy, but I want you to trust me and I want you to show me that you trust me. You can't just say it. You're going to show me you trust me. So in Exodus 20, when God is having this conversation with Moses, and this is what you're going to say to the people, Moses knows he's not on that mountain to get in good with God. He knows he's not there to to be in God's favor, to do something that's going to make him okay with God. He knows he's already in. He's not trying to establish a relationship with God. He's already got one. He's not even there to try to figure out, are you our God? No, he knows. He is their God. God had delivered them from their captors, even though they really hadn't done a thing to deserve it. They don't even have a clue, really, what the rules are with God. But he has already acted on their behalf. And now, because they are his and he is theirs, he's going to give them the law in which they are to live by. And this is important because we can get tricked into thinking the Ten Commandments are this big, powerful God handing out these rules to initiate a relationship. That's not it. That's not the story. We know, looking back, that a relationship had already been set into God acted first. He moved first. He proved himself first before the rules, before the requirements, before God asked anything of Israel. God had made his character known. He had made his love and he had made the relationship known. 
He established this relationship with them before they even knew what the rules were. He was their God. Their trust as God led them and rescued them was what it took to establish a relationship that God initiated. Their trust as God led them and rescued them was what it took to establish a relationship that God initiated. Now, once that happened, God gave them the laws and what we know as the Ten Commandments. Here's the important thing to remember, to really set the page for us as we move forward, because we're going to go through them in the next few weeks. But rules are never the starting point for a relationship with your Heavenly Father. That's not the starting point. They never come first. If God gives you rules to follow, it's because you're already in. You have that relationship. God knows that rules without a uh, relationship results in rebellion. You're just given rules with no relationship. There's going to be rebellion that takes place. So God doesn't say, hey, I'm going to accept you whether or not you keep these. They were in. Sort of like having kids. My kids aren't my kids because they obey me. It's not based upon a performance or an acceptance of them. But a lot of us, our first taste of God is with rules. That's why a lot of people resist church. They resist God. Because they see him as only there to accept them if they follow all the commandments. But God never said anything like that. He never implied that. He never inferred that. He never modeled that. He never illustrated that. In fact, he does the exact opposite. He comes down to Moses and he says, you're mine, I'm yours. And these commandments are confirmation. It comes down to trust. They had to trust him. They had to take the blood. And then in this relationship, God says, okay, here's some rules. Here's some guidelines. And so these commandments are not pointless. We can't hear that and think they're not valid. They're worthless. No. We're going to look at these and we can understand. You learn a lot about someone by the rules that they give. That's going to tell you a whole lot about their character and who they are. But we have to understand the big picture. That this is a God who loved his people and was already in a relationship with. I'll give you an illustration. It's, it's Facebook driven. No one here is on Facebook, are they? You know, Facebook is such a typically, especially around political season, just calm. Everyone's happy-go-lucky. A lot of fun. Well, our... Neighborhood's Facebook page is quite dramatic, to say the least. I don't know if your neighborhood has one, if you're in a neighborhood, but there's 700-some homes in our neighborhood, and most of them, and even those, Sarah, not to just really highlight you today, Sarah, Sarah's not even in our neighborhood, but she's a part of our Facebook page. I don't know how this happens, but people get in, and Sarah just must love drama, or just laughing at people in drama, but... It's, it can be a kind of this crazy, surreal experience as people argue with one another over their keyboards. But this past week, there were some dogs running loose in our neighborhood, and these dogs have been out before. And so that always is a, a button to push with certain people. But these dogs supposedly have been aggressive the, the last few days. 
and, and people were taking pictures of them. Like, I couldn't even get close. It charged me. And, and testimonials of it, it tried to get my dog, and it tried to eat me. And then people saying, when I walk out there, I'm carrying, and I'm going to blast that dog. And da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Whichever side of the fence you want to be on, that's fine. I'm not here to get into the drama of that. But it makes you think a little bit in relationship to whose dog it is. See, if you have a dog, anyone have a dog, you're a dog owner? We have a beautiful golden retriever. Love our dog. Now, our dog, we put into our backyard quite often. We have a fence around our backyard. We fence the dog in when we let the dog out or to go to the restroom or just to be out. Sometimes the dog just likes to run and play. But if that dog gets out of your fence and is running around, is that dog no longer your dog? What if a neighbor calls us, ah, your dog's out. Would you, would you come get your dog? And you're like, hang, hang on a second. You open the back door, you're like, no, it's not my dog. Like, no, 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 your dog is out here. I've seen you with this dog. The, the dog's not in my backyard. I've got a fence, and the dog's not in my fence, so that's not my dog. And that person said, you crazy. That's your dog. That is your dog. You purchased that dog. I was there the week you brought home the dog and you were bragging about the dog and that you paid for the dog and it's your dog. You're like, no, no, no. My dog says, I got a fence. And if it's outside my fence, it's not my dog. We would think, what a ridiculous thought that is. It's your dog. You purchased that dog. It's your dog, whether it's in the fence or not in the fence. When it comes to God, God puts up a fence. Hey, this is the best way for you to have a vibrant, fruitful life. Okay, commands that are not to be a burden, but to be a blessing. But he puts up those fence for those that are already his, that have been purchased by his blood. So the fence isn't what made that dog my dog. The dog was my dog because we purchased Hannah are pretty pennies. Even though she was a foster dog, we, we, we go cheap. But, but we still purchased the dog. Okay? If you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, it's not the fence that makes you his. It's the purchase. Revelations 5.8 says this, and when he took the scroll, the four living beings, this is a, a, apocalyptic literature. This is a, a, a vision of heaven, okay? And so there's some imagery here that you'll have to follow along with, but it's to be symbolic. And when he took the scroll, the four living beings and 24 elders fell down before the lamb. You'll see on the screen right there is lamb capitalized. Yes, we're talking about Jesus, the lamb. Each one had a harp. They had held gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song with these words. Here's the song they sing. You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it. They're singing about the lamb. For you were slaughtered and your blood has ransomed or purchased people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Listen, we're going to talk about the fence. We're going to talk about why the fence exists. And we're going to talk about the, the next few weeks. But the point is God has given us laws and rules and commandments because we're already in. Not as a means to get in. Obedience is not the grounds of our relationship, but the overflow of it. It's not the grounds. It's, it's not the, what gets you in the relationship. Listen, but it is an overflow of it. But the message of the Old Testament and New Testament is that God has invited you into a relationship of unconditional love based nothing 
on what you do, but on everything that he has done on your behalf. And that is the sacrifice of the lamb, the unblemished lamb and his blood atoning for your sins so that there's a Passover of guilt, shame, and a releasing of forgiveness. See, what's amazing about the Old Testament, New Testament, it all points to Jesus. You know, when Jesus was resurrected, and, and there's this little story about him walking this road to Emmaus, and he's with these two gentlemen that had heard about Jesus and were curious about the things of Jesus, did not know that he was right there with them. Didn't know all about what had transpired with Jesus. But Jesus, it says in the scripture, that he took the Old Testament, the law of the prophets, and began explaining to them how that all pointed to Jesus, who was right there with them, but yet they were clueless to who he was. But here in the Old Testament, Exodus, we see the blood of the lamb with no defects put on the door as a way to say, I trust you, God. I'm with you. I'm in. And then we come to the pages in the New Testament, and understand who that lamb is, and it's Jesus. It's not about the fence. It's about the sacrifice of the lamb and his blood covering you, being applied to your life, trusting in God through the sacrifice of his son. That is the only way to establish that relationship, saying, okay, I trust, I believe in the lamb, in your son, who came and lived a perfect life for me with no defect. The Bible describes Jesus as sinless, as blameless. He, he became our sin, yet he knew no sin. And so just like what happened to the Israelites and having to trust in the blood of the lamb, today we must trust in his blood. And if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, whether you're listening online right now or, or the podcast or you're in this room, it starts with trust and a faith in Jesus, the Lamb. And I beg of you to surrender today and to quit trying the fence route. It, there's too many holes. It's not going to work for you. You haven't kept the fence perfectly if you're still following me. We've all screwed up. Hammer said, can't touch this, and you did. But what is perfect is the Son. And what the Bible tells us is that his righteousness becomes our righteousness when we trust so that God can pass over without bringing judgment upon us because his wrath was placed upon Jesus as our sacrifice. And so put your faith and trust in Jesus. Do that today. And if you have done that, what incredible news we got to share. What incredible news that we need to let people know because you have people in your life and in your circle of influence that are trusting in a ratty old fence, broken down old fence, not even sure if they're doing a good job keeping up with the fence. And you can set them free to say, hey, it's not about the fence. It's about the lamb. It's about what Jesus did for you. Now we'll look later and figure out the heart of God, the character of God, and what all that fence is about. But it doesn't start with a fence. It starts with a lamb. It starts with Jesus. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes? You know, lately we've been 
having a response time at the end. And, and that's just meant really to give space for the Lord to talk to you, for you to talk to the Lord. And so I'm just going to ask the worship team to come up again. And I want you to be able to be at a place where you're worshiping and you're, you're processing this even in this moment. And so I want to start, if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, would you do that? Would you apply the blood of Christ to your door, to your heart? See, we're not talking literally with the sacrifice of Jesus. There's this blood of his that we have to take. Listen, that sacrifice happened thousands of years ago. But the Bible says that if we put our faith and trust in him now, it is the same as taking that blood and applying it to us for the forgiveness of sins. And maybe even in our worship time, you want to do communion today. And you want to remember the blood of Jesus. And you want to go to our table over here on the wall and participate with the bread, the cracker, and the, and the juice as his blood. But if you've never put your faith and trust in him, would you do that? It's simply, and, and let me say this for Facebook Live, for those in the room and even the podcast now. If you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, would you say something like this? God, I admit I, I have messed up. I haven't done everything perfect. I can completely confess that. I know I've sinned. But right now, I believe, I believe in Jesus, that Jesus is the Lamb of God, the one who has come to take away my sin. I believe in the sacrifice of Jesus. He's the Son of God. And I'm asking Jesus to come into my life and forgive me of every sin I've ever done, every sin of the past, present, and future. Forgive me of sin. Be my boss, my Lord, my Savior. And in the best way that I know how, right now in this instance, I just say I'm in. I commit. I'm in. I, I'm going to follow you. When no one look around this as a church, we want to help you. We want to be there for you. If you're a believer, listen, I want to in, enter into a time of you thanking the Lord for his blood, his sacrifice. But I also want you to be praying for those that you need to share this good news with. And so let's spend a moment here worshiping the Lord together. And if you want to do communion, if you want to sit and pray, if you want to kneel, if you want to come up here and make this an altar, or if you want to ask for prayer, you respond as the Lord would lead. This is Pastor John. Thank you so much for listening to the Everyday Church Podcast. For more information on us or if you happen to make a spiritual decision during this message, please let us know and go to our website, www.everyday.church. There's an email link that you can click on and we would love to hear from you. If there's anything going on that has happened during this message, if the Lord has spoken to you or you made a decision to follow Jesus Christ. Also, if there's a prayer request or concern, then you can email us and we would love to take the time to pray for you and respond in any way that we can. Again, thank you so much for listening. God bless. Thank you.